According to Forbes magazine, last year's top model was Giselle. Anybody heard of Giselle? Am I saying that right? She raked in $30.5 million last year. The top male model was Sean O'Pry, who made $1.5 million. A little discrepancy there. But in either case, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for putting on some clothes and walking down a runway or having your picture taken over and over again. But listen, that's what clothes designers are willing to invest to entice you to buy what is modeled before you. They show you the possibilities of, of what might be. So if you saw those clothes hanging on the rack, you might pass them by. But if you see those clothes on Giselle... Or Sean, you might hold out this hope. If I buy those clothes, I will look like that in those clothes. Now here's a true story. That's never worked for me. I'm quite confident, I'm quite confident that no one in this room has ever envisioned Levites as models. Those long beards and curly things right here. Listen, this morning, the Levites are models. They are God's models. And they are here to show us the possibilities of what can be. And they existed to entice people to live the kind of life that they lived and do the things that they did. So that people would want to say, I want my life to look like that. I hope that's what we achieve this morning as we return to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33. So I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 33. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place, let's stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. And now verse 8. About Levi, he said, Your Tumim and Urim belong to the man you favored. You tested him at Massah. You contended with him at the waters of Meribah. He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brother's Or acknowledge his own children. But he watched over your word. And guarded your covenant. He teaches your precepts to Jacob. And your law to Israel. He offers incense before you. The whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless all his skills O Lord. And be pleased with the work of his hands. Smite the loins of those who rise up against him. Strike his foes till they rise no more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we give you thanks for your word. And here we are standing in your presence, Lord, your people, and we are eager to receive the truth from your word. And so we ask now that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would take your word and what's true and only what's true and apply that to our hearts and our lives, Lord, so that more and more, our lives model 
what you have for us. Bless us toward this end by doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Unlike some of the passages that we have dealt with on our long journey through the book of Deuteronomy, there's nothing particularly obscure or even new here in the verses we have before us this morning. Instead, the truths that we hear are are foundational truths. And so when I think of the passage before us this morning, I, I think of the words of the hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Or Hebrews chapter 2, 1 that says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's something about hearing again and again and again that moors us. It keeps us close to where we are supposed to be. So you may want to use these verses this morning as a a way of measuring. How close in are you to where you should be or want to be? Or how far have you drifted away from that mark? The last time we were in Deuteronomy 33, which was a month ago, we talked about a redeemed life. And on his deathbed, Jacob, Levi's father, spoke these words to Levi. May I never join in your meetings. May I never be a party to your plans. For in your anger you murdered men. You crippled oxen just for sport. A curse on your anger, for it's fierce. A curse on your wrath, for it is cruel. I will scatter you among the descendants of Jacob. I will disperse you throughout Israel. Not very... Good words for a dying father to have to say to a son. And so we're left wondering what kind of man was Levi? What kind of things did he do that would cause his father to speak these words to him? We don't know the answer to that. All we know is this, that whoever Levi was and whatever Levi did, God redeemed him. And that's the good news. The sinful things he did, the selfish acts, those sinful character qualities of Levi that he used for his own selfish gain or for destructive purposes, however he used them, God redeemed them. So that God then says to Moses, bring the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering so that they may be ready to do the work of the Lord, the Lord's work. In this way, you are to set apart the Levites from the other Israelites, and the Levites will be mine. Wow, right? Wow. That is the power of the redeeming work of God. How beautiful and how encouraging to us that God has the resources to buy us back, right? And once he takes possession of us, God absolutely has the power to to reclaim and to restore us completely. However, the redemption of Levi and your redemption and my redemption is not an end unto itself. I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed. That's wonderful, right? But that's not the end of the story. God redeems all of those he redeems for his own purpose. And that's what we see 
in the remaining verses of this blessing this morning. The, the life of Levi now as a tribe, here in these verses, is what they are to do. And this is what they are to do. As they live their lives scattered throughout the nation of Israel, they are to model They are to lead in. They are to entice others to live a God-centered life. And that's the same thing that should happen for you and for me this morning. This enticement, this desire in each of us to live a God-centered life. Specifically, there were three characteristics of redeemed life that the Levites modeled. Number one, it must be a life guided by the Lord. Number two, it must be a life that puts the Lord first above all other relationships. And number three, it must be a life devoted to the word of the Lord and the worship of the Lord. So let's begin with the first one, a life guided by the Lord. Look in verse 8. It says there, your Tumim and Urim belong to the man you favored. Now, what is Tumim and Urim? It sounds like a spice or something, right? Hey, honey, the chili leaves a little more to me. No, that's not what it is. Here's what God says about this. It's in Exodus 28, 30. Put the Urim and the Tumim in the breast piece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. So if you recall in our study of Deuteronomy, you know the priest had special garments. And one of them was the breast piece. And on the breast piece, there were 12 stones. And each of those 12 stones had one of the names of the 12 scribes of Israel uh, inscribed on it. In addition to those stones, we have now these stones called the Tumim and the Urim. And they're right over the heart of the priest when the priest enters into the presence of God. Scholars aren't sure exactly how these stones worked, but the point is this. They were used to get guidance from the Lord. Many believe that these flat stones had Tumim inscribed on one side, and on the other side was Urim inscribed on that. And and Tumim means perfect, and Urim means cursed. And so you're an Israelite and a difficult situation comes up in your life and and you're not sure what to do. You're not sure how to answer the question. You're not sure what decision to make. And so you go to the priest and the priest would take out the Tumim and the Urim and he would throw them. Now, when he throws these stones, if both stones turn up, Tumim, meaning perfect, the priest would say, oh, Yes, go and do what it is you want to do. If the priest rolled the stones and tossed them and they both came up Urim, then the priest would say, no, do not do this thing. Of course, you know the third option. You roll the stones and one is Tumim and one is Urim. And the priest says, you know what? There's not a clear answer on this. Both ways are permissible. Do whatever it is that you want to do. So what's really important It's not how these stones worked 3,000 years ago. What's important is that this is the heart of God for his people. He puts in place a way to guide them, to guide people who will come to him and seek his will. 
Because here's the thing. God doesn't intend for us to be unmoored in our lives. Drifting aimlessly without direction. God wants his people to know the right path to take and the right decision to make. So here's my question. How many people in Israel actually did this? Actually came to the priest and said, throw those stones for me. I can't answer that question. But imagine the faith it would take to do that. To really believe Proverbs 16.33 that says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The New Living Translation says this, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. So what's the Levite modeling for God's people? They're modeling faith that says, The God who loves me, the God who wants me to seek his will for my life, will guide my steps through those stones. Now that takes faith. Because all of us kind of sort of have an idea about what we want to do, even when we're not quite sure. And so will I accept and trust the decision? Or will I say, hey, Mr. Priest, let's toss again. Let's do the best two out of three. No, 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 no. Wait, I've changed my mind. No, no. Let's make it the best three out of five, right? You just keep tossing until you get the answer you want. Do you trust the Lord to guide you? God wanted the Levites to model that, yes, our Father loves us. He cares about all of our life, every part of it. And he will guide when his people seek his will and trust his leading. So what you and I are supposed to do with our redeemed lives is to seek God's will for them. We don't cast stones anymore. Though it's true that the apostles cast lots to choose the replacement, the apostle replacement for for Judas, but that was before Pentecost, before the coming of the Spirit, before the writing of the New Testament. For you and for me, we have the indwelling Spirit of God. That's what we have. We have the inspired, infallible Word of God. And look around the room. We have a family here that God has brought together. Lots of different people with lots of different gifts. And we can go to them for counsel and advice. These are the gifts that our loving Father gives to us because He wants us to get it right. God is not trying to trick us. You know that's true, right? God is not trying. He's not hoping that we will turn left when He knows that we are supposed to turn right. That's not the way of the Lord. But you won't know the, the blessing of God's guidance if, if you and I, if we don't avail ourselves to what God has given us. If you make every decision in isolation on your own, isolation even maybe from the Word of God, isolation maybe even from prayer before the Lord, isolation from other believers because you don't trust, then you get what you get. If you bring others into the process, you get the benefit of another person who's not there to tell you what to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do, but they're there to offer a different perspective. 
on the situation, a different perspective on the Word of God. And when you pool that with God's Word and God's Spirit, before you know it, you have confidence in decision-making. Let me tell you, I've been pastoring for 25 years, and I can probably count on one hand the number of people that I know who have made their decisions in this way. Of course, at the end of the day, you have to make the decision. No one can make it for you. The question is simply this. Do you trust that God wants to guide you? Do you trust that God has put things in place to help you know where to go? It may be to green pastures. It may be to quiet waters. But it may be through the valley of the shadow of death. But do you trust God is leading you in the way that you should go. The Levites scattered throughout Israel to be a model and a constant reminder that God's people should seek the will of the Lord who will guide us. And that's the truth for us to remember this morning as well. Secondly, in addition to modeling being guided by the Lord, the Levites modeled complete devotion to the Lord. Look with me in verse 9. The Levite said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children. And so the Levites are taking the most intimate relationships on earth. Father, mother, siblings, children. But in comparison to his relationship with the Lord, the Levite says they are like nothing. Now, of course, the Levites loved their parents well and loved their siblings well and loved their children well. Had they not done that, they would not be obeying the word of the Lord. This is just poetic language, this blessing. It's poetic language that says, in all things, God must be first. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 18. Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent or have the supremacy First in all things. Now, of course, Jesus gets a bad rap for this, right? Always. God always gets a bad rap. What kind of God would declare such love and devotion? What kind of egomaniac would do that? But here's the better question. Why should Jesus not require that? Listen to what Paul writes in verse 19, Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in Christ And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Listen up. When you are the fullness of God in human form, when you do something like this, when you have the power to reconcile, not some things, but all things in heaven and earth, when you bring peace between the two, guess what? You get to be first, right? He must be first because Jesus knows that salvation is found in no other name. 
Where are the places that we look when we want to be helped or saved or delivered from a difficult situation? Mom, Dad, help. Those girls, Mom, Dad, help. Come on, dude. I'm your brother. Help me out a little bit. The model life, the life that God wants for us places Him first. Because you know what? Other relationships cannot do for you what Jesus alone can do. That doesn't mean other relationships are bad. Not at all. It just means they're not equipped for it. Other relationships cannot support the kind of weight that you will put on them if you put on those relationships first and demand of them what only Jesus can do. I'm telling you, those other relationships will collapse under the weight. And as much as your parents love you and your spouse loves you and your children love you, nobody loves you like Jesus. I know that sounds like a cheesy contemporary Christian song, but it's true. Nobody loves you like Jesus. A love not just spoken in words, but a love lived out by choices he made. Jesus chose to leave heaven to come to earth. Jesus, the perfect, sinless one, chose to live in this broken, messed up world. Jesus chose to give his life by dying on the cross. And someone whose love drives them to make decisions like that, guess what? They get to be number one in our devotion and affection. Right? Right? Others will fail you because nobody can love you completely. Nobody. Nobody can love you unconditionally. And everybody's love for you is, is tainted with just a little bit of self-interest. That's just the way we are. But Jesus will never fail you. So God's requirement, Jesus' requirement to put him first is really an enormous blessing to us. He never says not to love those other people. He just says put those relationships in their proper perspective. Relationships with people, your relationship with your job, your relationship with your grades, your relationship with your finances, your relationship with your hobbies. All of them, for all of us, must take second place to Jesus. When we come to him first and look to him for what only he can do for us, guess what? Then he'll help us with all of those other relationships. Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and all these other things will be added unto you. We say that and sing that so much we don't think about it deeply. But Jesus is saying something already exists. You already exist. And guess what? Put me first and I'm going to add to you. Now given what you know about Jesus, is what he, gonna, is what he adds going to be for your benefit or your detriment? Don't even honor that with an answer, right? Because it is for our benefit and our blessing. So with your redeemed life, you must put Jesus first. And thirdly, the Levites model not only being guided by the Lord and and devoted to the Lord first above all things, but they are devoted to the word of God and to the worship of God. Look in verse 9, the second half. The Levites watched over your word and guarded your covenant. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. See, people, 
throughout Israel would see the Levites being devoted to the Word of God. They would watch over it. They would guard it because the Word of God was such a treasure to them. You know, I had a neighbor once. (laughs) This is the late 70s. He had this beat-up old Cadillac, and he drove it to New York City, and he left it at Central Park running. And he left it for hours, hoping someone would steal that Cadillac. (laughs) No one stole the Cadillac. He had to drive it back to Charleston, South Carolina. He didn't guard it because it wasn't a treasure to him, right? You only guard what's a treasure to you. And, And to the Levites, the Word of God was their treasure to them. And they would teach it for, to others. They would put it before others. Here's a treasure. And open it up and say, oh, look what is inside. They were devoted to the word of the Lord. That's what we do as people living in God's kingdom. We're devoted to his word. And along with the word, the Levites were in charge of worship for the people of Israel. Look in verse 10. He offers incense before you. And the whole burnt offering on your altar. Of course, there's all kinds of great symbolism in worship. Not the least of which is the smoke that rises from earth up to heaven, up to God. Lord, this is how we reach you. We take of what we have on earth and we we send it up to you. And of course, the, the fragrance, the beautiful fragrance of that incense symbolizes that our offerings that we make to the Lord, they're pleasing to him. He accepts them. The entirety of the burnt offering mentioned in this verse symbolizes the entirety of who we are in worship. It's all translated. It's all translated into a form that rises up to the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. All of our lives are to be sacrifices to the Lord. And sacrifice means to give up something. And that's what we're remembering this weekend, right? We're remembering the 4th of July. We're remembering red, white, and blue. We're remembering the Revolutionary War. We're remembering the patriots. We're remembering the sacrifices they made, not only of their material goods, but of their very lives. They sacrificed for the cause of freedom. And that's what sacrifice is, right? It's giving up, giving up what you love. And so for us, it's saying, here is my life, Lord. I give it up for you. That's what you're to do. It's what I'm to do with our redeemed lives. We are to give them to the Lord. And so here's the question for me. And here's the big question of the day. You ready? (laughs) Just say yes. Thank you. A life seeking the Lord's will, a life guided by Him, a life of putting Christ first, a life of devotion to His Word and to His worship, is that the normal Christian life? Is what's modeled before us the life for every believer or only some believers? It seems to me that there is an accepted divide that exists now and has always existed in the church. And the divide is between 
Christians and the really Christians. You know the story. You know what happened in 380 when the emperor Theodosius declared that Christianity was the the one and only official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, overnight, pagan priests became Christian priests with no conversion experience. Well, everybody wanted to be in good with the state, so the churches were filled with people who called themselves Christians, but had had no conversion experience, right? So what happened? In order to, for, for real Christians to separate themselves from people who call themselves Christians, they did crazy things. They became ascetics. Simeon, the stylite, lived on a platform at the top of a pole for 37 years. Can you imagine? Or you became a hermit and you moved out in the desert and you lived this, this life, of, uh, uh, this meager life, isolated from everyone else. Or you became a monk and moved into a monastery or a nun and you moved into a convent. And then the church could say this, well, I'm a Christian, but those people over there, they are really Christians. And so the model became for some but not for all. And that dichotomy has persisted to this very day, July 2nd, 2017. And this is the great divide. It's between, however you want to say it, clergy and laity or full-time Christian workers and those who aren't full-time Christian workers. Some Christians should be the family members that are on mission together, but not all Christians need to be on mission. And that's what we think, isn't it? It's for some, but not all. Mission is for some, but not all. Well, let's see what God thinks of our great divide. Woo, I love it. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle Peter writes, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So here's the question. Who's the you here? Who's Peter addressing? Who are the priests in the priesthood? Just the clergy? Just the full-time Christian worker? Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. First Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter tells us who he's writing to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. So, there's the answer. Who's the you? Who's the priest in the priesthood? Who's the family member that's supposed to be on mission together? Every single person that God has called into His family. Right? Did I say that? No, God said that. And if you look at a New Testament era map from this time and and you see the territory covered by these provinces that Peter has named, it's huge. And so how beautifully Peter continues and expands the Deuteronomy blessing on the Levites who were also scattered 
throughout the nation of Israel. Now, all those God has called to himself, all those God has called to himself are priests on mission together, scattered throughout the world. And that's the point. We are all now Levites. So what's modeled here before us this morning? Seeking the guidance of the Lord and trusting it. Putting the Lord first above all others. Being devoted to the word of the Lord and offering yourself in worship to the Lord. This is the normal Christian life. And this is the life to which God calls you. And just in case you think I'm being extreme, we will close like this with verse 11. Look there. Bless all his skills, O Lord, and be pleased with the work of his hands. Smite the loins of those who rise up against him. Strike his foes till they rise no more. The Levites, you see, are objects of special prayer. Lord, toward this goal of living a life trusting in your guidance, toward this goal of living a life in which you are first in all things, toward the goal of living a life that is completely devoted to your word and to your worship, bless every work of their hands. That's what this says. And Lord... Should any try to thwart this model of living that they're putting before others, should any attempt to pervert it, strike that person down so that they may not get up to attempt to thwart or pervert again. Lord, let your plan for redeeming your people and your plan for living this kind of life, redeemed life, always succeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are thankful for your word and for the truth of it. Lord, your heart is on display once again in these verses before us. You tell us the kind of God you are. A God who is not against us, but for us. You want what is good for us. You want us to go in the right way. And you want us to seek from you what is that way. Lord, you want us to put you first because you know that you are our only help and our only hope in this world. So yes, you want first place in our lives for our good and for our benefit. And Lord, since your word is a revelation of you and your truth, of course we need to be devoted to it. And worship, Lord, you give it to us. The blessing to come together and offer ourselves to you. So we thank you for your heart that's for us, Lord. We pray now that we would use the lives that you have redeemed for your good purposes. That Everything we've talked about this morning, Lord, may that be true in our lives. May it be true that we seek you. Love you first, are devoted to your word and to your worship. Father, in this way, we will be a family on mission together. We then will become the models, Lord, right here in this city that's watching us. And Lord, maybe what they see modeled by us will entice them as well. Maybe they'll say, wow, that's the life I want 
for myself. We pray that that would be true of us because of you and your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.